Hello and welcome to the Political Notebook Podcast. I'm Billy Robb. I'm a high school teacher. I'm Robert Robb, an editorial columnist for the Arizona Republic, and Billy's dad. This week on the Political Notebook, we're talking about energy and water, things that are very important, but we don't realize how important they are often uh, because they're always there and we take them for granted. <clears throat> we flip a switch and our lights turn on, plug in our phone, it just charges, uh, turn on the faucet, water automatically comes out. And uh, the politics and policies of water and energy are not flashy, and I'll admit myself, um, <laughs> it's hard for me to get fired up about the details of, of water policy in Arizona. Um, but uh, important things are not always uh, exciting and flashy, so we're going to talk about energy and water policy, and I'll be asking a lot of questions, <laughs> and my dad will be giving a lot of answers. Um, or trying to. Trying, trying to figure out the energy and water situation in Arizona. Let's start with energy. Um, so we know a few things. Uh, global warming is happening. It's probably caused by humans using dirty energy. Uh, Arizona has an abundance of sunshine here. So why not? There's been a couple laws or a couple efforts proposed to require more renewable energy, especially solar. Um, so why not here in Arizona make a law uh, requiring, for example, solar panels in all houses or that 50% of our energy should be renewable in the next 10 years? Uh, for utilities regulated by the Arizona Corporation Commission, which is our um, public utilities commission as they exist in other states, uh, has a current requirement that 15% um, of electricity generated has to come from renewable sources by uh, 2025. There is an initiative being circulated that would increase that to 50% by 2030 and create steps along the way that would get us there far quicker than the current 15% requirement. I don't doubt that ultimately uh, the technology will be such um, that um, the overwhelming majority of electricity and energy in the state will be generated by solar. But right now it is uh, more expensive than other sources. And as you increase the amount that comes from um, renewable sources, uh, wind and solar, uh, at present those are intermittent sources. So um, you don't get it when the wind doesn't blow. You don't get it when it's cloudy and the sun doesn't shine. Uh, and that unpredictability creates challenges in balancing what's a very fragile grid system. So the concern is if you push the requirement ahead of technological advancement, uh, you may send prices uh, higher than is comfortable, and may create grid unreliability. Um, the technological breakthroughs that would uh, make those two problems manageable are in sight, but they're not yet here. Those would be like battery um, storage? In, well, yeah, in terms of 
the intermittency um, battery storage uh, would be a very big solution. Uh, right now, um, that's, as I say, a technological advancement that's in sight, uh, but isn't here. Mm -hmm. um, so, that, so that's the concern, is that we will push the requirement ahead of the technology, create problems in terms of price, create problems in terms of grid reliability. So let's take, take a step back a little bit and uh, look at some of the players that are, that are involved here in this dispute. And you mentioned um, ACC, which is the Arizona Corporation Commission. Is that what you said? Yes, that's a group of regulators that we elect and, to oversee and, um, utilities. And we elect that. What's So we elect those people to regulate the utilities. What's their relationship between our two main power companies here in Arizona, our APS and SRP? Uh, there is the Corporation Commission in charge of regulating both of those agencies. They are both not. Both those power um, companies. They, they are uh, the, the Corporation Commission is in charge of regulating Arizona Public Service Corporation. It is not in charge of regulating the Salt River Project. The Salt River Project is a very odd legal entity. Um, it was it, its heart was formed when we built the the, the dams on the Verde and the Salt, um, which we may discuss uh, in the water <laughs> in the water segment. And the landowners in the valley uh, at that point in time pledged their property as collateral uh, to get those dams built. So they have a right to water. Uh, the um, association evolved into an electric power district. Um, and the um, overall district is also elected uh, but most of the seats are elected on not a one-person, one-vote, but an acreage uh, voting system. You're still talking about SRP. We're talking about SRP. So and, they've kind of got their so own self-regulated sort of situation. Largely self-regulated. I think that's a fair description. The, the governing board is elected, but again, it's not one-person, one-vote for most of the seats. Some of the seats are that. It's a very complicated entity, and, the, and, and, and it's in part a, a federal reclamation district. It's in part a subdivision of the state. It's in part a electric utility. And so, when, and so the Arizona Corporation Commission, which has their own requirement for 15% renewable energy by 2025, right. that does not apply to SRP? It does not, but SRP has adopted a comparable goal um, of its own. Okay. So it's it's moving in the same direction. So and the initiative, by law, can't reach the Salt River Project. So here in the Valley, that 50% requirement by uh, 2030 would apply to APS, but not to SRP. And where does... Uh where does that energy come from now? So a APS and SRP, uh, I know there's Palo Verde nuclear power plant here, um, but I believe most of our energy comes from natural gas. Where, where is, where is, what's powering our lights in this, in this podcast and this computer right now? It's, it's largely a combination of nuclear and um, natural gas. 
with still some legacy coal uh, for both the APS and Salt River Project, although they are transitioning out of coal. They also both have um, large-scale utility solar energy component, which has been a growing part of their portfolio. And there is, um, there was in uh, both areas, growing use of rooftop uh, solar um, because of the change in incentives that have been adopted by the Corporation Commission for APS, self-adopted for SRP, the growth in rooftop solar has sort of stalled out for now. Um, So that's kind of like on the energy side here, uh, APS, SRP, and the uh, Arizona Corporation Commission oversight over over APS. And the, the, the group that's trying to get to the push for this renewable energy law, I, I see a lot of it on Twitter and, and advertisements uh, and some arguments back and forth uh, about the source of this, this initiative that's trying to get on the ballot that would uh, create this 50% renewable plan. Uh, who's behind that initiative that's trying to get this renewable energy passed, and why is it such a controversial thing here in Arizona? Now, re- reportedly, the money uh, is coming from a uh, rich environmentalist by the name of Tom Steyer, uh, who also is running a national campaign to get um, President Trump impeached, um, even before the Mueller report um, comes out. So he's... Very rich, uh, very liberal, um, very devoted to environmental causes, and reportedly he is the funding source uh, behind um, the signature gathering for the initiative. So that's kind of created a little backlash of like get California policies out of our um, out of our state, especially well, and, with the and, conservatives and, here in Arizona. Yeah, and Cal- California does have more rigorous. Um, renewable energy requirements than we than we have here in in Arizona but in in politics you um, are against out-of-state influences except those that support <laughs> your cause exactly um, so uh, Steyer is to the right what the Koch brothers is to the left a malignant uh, outside <laughs> influence yeah and I, and I understand the the feeling of like oh we don't want higher prices. We don't want to screw up our grid right now. And uh, Arizona has pretty affordable housing prices compared to California and other places. So making making a requirement for um, solar power, even though you would save money on your, on your electric bill, the technology isn't there to really make it totally worth it. Um, but wouldn't the technology get there? Wouldn't, wouldn't the law be a push you, know, you can kind of say, well, the technology isn't caught up there yet, but if you created a law that said we're going to use this, wouldn't, wouldn't there be almost like an immediate competition to, to get there and the incentives would be there uh, a, lot, a lot more? Uh, and even from a free market perspective, you could, you could think of, um, well, the, the market incentives aren't there right now because there's such cheap energy, but the externalities of of uh, global warming, which uh, 
it's pretty, you know, universally accepted as uh, a problem and a growing uh, immediate problem. Shouldn't even a free market type person say, let's, let's put in some, some more incentives to get this technology going faster and get a faster way to get, get a battery. That argument is made by uh, free marketeers and those that are suspicious of, of markets. Um, I don't think it's desirable or uh, necessary. Um, energy is a big, big business. Uh, solar energy has the potential to be cheaper than any other source because you don't have to pay for the raw ingredient. The sun is free. Uh, there is all sorts of incentives for people to want to break out of being a captive ratepayer to a monopoly provider. Um, so I believe that without government sort of putting its thumb on the scale, uh, there's ample incentive to develop the technological breakthroughs that would make solar energy cheaper and uh, more reliable. Now, the one... Um, government intervention that I think would be warranted is to put a tax on carbon uh, to uh, for government to tax based upon the amount of carbon is put in the air uh, by different fuel sources. Uh, that would hugely disadvantage coal. Um, our, the United States actually has sort of led the world in reduction in carbon intensity of our um, economic output. And it's been by the natural transition that has occurred from coal to natural gas based upon natural gas becoming more plentiful and cheaper. And natural gas emits about half um, the uh, carbon emissions uh, as does coal. Uh, but... Uh, natural gas emits more than nuclear. It emits more than solar. So that is the one putting the thumb on the scale that I think would be warranted. Uh, but other than that, I think that there is, there's just so much money there Yeah. Uh, that the incentive would be there for the investment without government running risks by mandates that may exceed the advance of technology, Are, irrespective of what kind of incentives you provide. Is that happening, as you're aware of? I haven't, I haven't researched what, if there are major companies making major investments. So it's, yeah, just, absolutely. it's, just, a, it's just a matter of the, we haven't had that, those kind of break, the scientific breakthroughs that we've... Well, we've had we'd e like enormous scientific breakthroughs. The, the efficiency of, of solar panels... Uh, and the cost of their manufacturing uh, has gone way down. Mm -hmm. uh, and the extent to which solar energy is more expensive than natural gas has been substantially narrowed. So I guess just... There are huge investments going on in battery technology. Uh, and uh, Elon Musk has reached a deal with the Australian government for a big demonstration project of creating battery storage capacity for utility scale, not, not just a battery that holds the energy for a home, mm -hmm. but a battery that holds the energy for an entire solar power plant. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and he's not at all alone uh, in this market. So no, there's enormous investments being made. And as I say, the payoff, I mean, if you can, right, if right. you can develop a solar energy panel that's 
cheaper uh, than natural gas or a uh, battery that allows people to emancipate themselves from being a captive ratepayer to a monopoly utility you're going to make a fortune and there's tons of investments that are taking place. And then just the one last question then on, on energy uh, before we go to water, is there nothing then? So it seems like um, from what you, from what you said and, and your, and your viewpoint that we don't need to tip the scales for this, that there's already incentives there and it is going to get there uh, and it's on due course. Is there anything tipping the scales the opposite way? Is there anything that APS or um, people that would, that, that have a financial incentive in the current energy system have that would be an obstacle to entry to these solar panels uh, once they're developed or once they're ready? In my judgment, no. I mean, so what APS, APS isn't opposed, or any regulated utility isn't opposed to a solar future. They just want to continue to be the provider of the energy. They want to continue to be the monopoly provider. So there is a competition between rooftop solar and utility-scale solar. Now, some would argue that the reduction in what APS and SRP pays for excess generation from rooftop solar is them entering into the market and trying to tip it away from rooftop solar. Mm -hmm. I think what was previously being paid was unfair to non-rooftop solar owners because um, rooftop solar owners were being compensated at the retail rate for what's clearly wholesale uh, power. So I think that we've gone from, from tipping towards rooftop solar to being neutral between yeah. rooftop and, and, and solar scale. My one concern... Uh, in terms of the role of our incumbent utilities, is because they want to be the monopoly provider, they're making huge investments in um, uh, utility-scale solar, um, so big solar energy production plants that they own or contract with. And then investments are coming from the money of the customers right now. You right assume. now are, are, are paying. Uh, but let's assume that rooftop becomes the... Um, source for the future. Uh, then you're going to have all these stranded utility-scale solars. So I'm a little worried about the extent to which the Arizona Corporation is pushing uh, the incumbent utilities towards solar uh, utility-scale solar uh, and sort of pre-approving um, being able to recover that from rates. That's not the way the system was originally set up. The way the our regulatory structure in Arizona was originally set up is that the utilities made their decisions as to what energy production uh, choices they would make. They would then apply to recover those costs uh, from the regulators. But the regulators would decide whether that investment was prudent or not. What we've done is that now the regulators are pre-approving those expenses and foregoing the ability later to say, hey, that investment wasn't prudent. Mm -hmm. uh, we're not going to make the ratepayers pay for your stranded uh, solar um, big uh, manufacturing plant um, because uh, the advantages of rooftop solar uh, were foreseeable. So we—that's th my big concern—is that we're—is—is is that we are 
pre-approving charging captive rate payers for these huge um, solar energy manufacturing plant plants when, in the long run, rooftop solar may prove itself to be a more advantageous alternative. Right. Well, let's uh, let's transition and talk about water, which uh, we live in a desert, Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, most of Arizona is in desert. Um, and I think people are surprised that this place even exists uh, and that we're question whether we're sustainable uh, and call us stupid for even trying to habitate this this desert. Uh, but, you know, Native peoples created a civilization here and used canals and, and drew, drew water from the rivers. Uh, we've kind of created the same uh, within, within those structures and uh, have a more sophisticated system now of drawing water from different reservoirs and uh, from the Colorado River. Uh, a lot of our water comes from uh, snowpacks um, in different mountain ranges coming coming down. Um, but we're growing a lot and the environment's changing. So um, is it really sustainable to have, you know, the millions that we have here uh, in this desert uh, and maybe anticipating millions more in addition uh, as environmental conditions are changing, which might make it more difficult to to get water. Are I you worried that we're running out of water anytime soon here? <laughs> I, I, I am not. Um, there's still efficiencies. Well, let me preface it by saying uh, we have become uh, far more efficient in the use of water in the valley uh, over time. Our... Uh, per capita um, usage rates have dropped dramatically. And we actually don't use any more water in the aggregate uh, than we were, I believe, in the 1970s, even though our population has increased so much. What have been some things that have caused that efficiency? Uh, An awful lot of it uh, has been uh, the transition from farming to housing. Um, development uses less water uh, than we use uh, to farm. Um, but there are um, other things that explain it uh, as well. We have more um, conservation-minded um, facilities and, and a, a greater conservation ethic. And like, isn't there like more, I know there's like on Indian School Road, there's a canal and there's this big like water reclamation center that can like we, we treat are, it again and, yeah, we, and we, use it for different we, we, reasons. We are using reclaimed water for um, a lot more uses than we used to. There is still tremendous room for more of that. Um, even with the efficiencies that we've achieved. And it's been a while since I have looked up these numbers, but a third to a half of our residential use of water is for outdoor uh, decorative or recreational purposes. Um, and so obviously there's more conservation than can occur there. When, when you look at the long-term projections of our water usage, people anticipate, experts anticipate, of a shortage of about 11%. Uh, 
Um, well, we are still pricing water uh, on its cost of production and, and relying on, on your background and experience as an economics teacher. Um, prices are supposed to reflect scarcity, not just mm-hmm. the cost of production. Well, I noticed and, the, and, gallon, and, the gallon, where I get my gallon fill up, it's gone up 25 cents over the last like six months. So well, I, I think we can easily achieve an 11% uh, reduction in consumption uh, by beginning to price water uh, based on scarcity, not just yeah. uh, the cost of production. So um, I am uh, pretty uh, sanguine about our ability to continue to grow and and grow on uh, existing water resources. And that's true even if we do have shortages that have to be allocated uh, as a result of uh, what might happen at Lake Mead for the Central Arizona yeah. Project Water. And I want to get into some of those details just a little bit. Um, but when you, I just wanted like, in terms of prices reflecting the scarcity, um, with that, I mean, it seems like there's maybe a fear of some scarcity moving forward. Um, are you saying that when it becomes, when it becomes like an immediate uh, scarce resource, the prices will adjust and people will start le- using less? Or are you are you advocating for some sort of uh, intervention with with water pricing? I advocate an intervention with uh, water pricing. I I think that our for the most part the price of water is set by government. Um, it's set by um, usually municipal water departments and city councils. Um, to the extent it's private water companies, uh, their prices are regulated by the Arizona Corporation Commission. And as I say, they tend to be just the cost of production. Uh, so I think we need to change that and begin now uh, adding a component for uh, scarcity. So in terms of like um, what your water bill is in your apartment, or your house so that you'd be a lot more conscious of like, Oh, should I take this long shower or do I really need to run this washing machine right now? Or, and and it's like, it's, it's less the indoor use than the outdoor use. I mean, we watering your lawn and stuff like that. We live in a irrigated, um, residential area where everyone has a big lawn and, and, uh, um, trees that aren't native to this area, there's a certain price at which um, I would be able to convince your mother that we should convert <laughs> to desert <laughs> landscaping. There's there's a price at which you start developing community pools right. than, than every home having their own pool. There's a, a price at which the water features that um, are part of a lot of our developments uh, wouldn't be made. There is tremendous conservation that could occur that would not affect um, indoor use uh, or I mean, we, we, we've got a lot of room there. And so rather than waiting until there is a scarcity and having government uh, ration the scarcity, tell mm-hmm. you that you can't water your lawn right, on right, certain right. days, you can only wash your car yeah. every other day. Uh, I would rather see us begin pricing yeah. now and inducing, letting people make their own decisions as to how much is my um, irrigated 
turf uh, lawn worth to me yeah. as opposed to um, converting to desert landscaping. Different people would make different decisions, but uh, to me, that's the way to do it, and we shouldn't wait until we run out of water uh, in order to do those sorts of things. Yeah, that's, uh, I would definitely be in favor of those sort of changes versus the um, kind of like micromanaged regulation on how, how you should behave. Uh, we're, go- we're going on almost a 30 minutes now, so I don't want to talk about the details of the policies all that much, but um, there was a lot of talk in this session that, you know, this was going to be the big year for some sort of water policy change in the in the laws or something. Maybe just, uh, if you could just quickly, like, um, how urgent is that, that that didn't happen? Um, and uh, what, what would you expect? Would that be one of the first things to come next next session, or... Uh, what's the political situation with, uh, is it an urgent, or how urgent is this I, I don't think change? it's as urgent as is commonly perceived. The, the urgency has to do with Lake Mead, which is where central Arizona project water is stored. And if the level in uh, the lake drops below a certain point, uh, then CAP allocations to the various states are cut. Arizona takes the first and the deepest cut. So there's a desire to do what we can to keep the water level up in Lake Mead to avoid triggering those cuts. Mm -hmm. There's a turf battle. Um, An entity was set up to manage the CAP in the state. It's a creature of state statute, the Central Arizona Water Conservation District. And it has left water behind... Um, to try to keep Lake Mead from dropping. The governor thinks that we should be doing more of that and wants to authorize his Department of Water Resources to make the decisions as to um, what water should we try to keep in the lake. Uh, The Central Arizona Water Conservation District says, well, that's an invasion of our turf. Um, are they an independent regulating agency? They, they are elected. elected. Or, okay. Yeah, they, they, it's an elected board. It's a creature of state statute. Okay. But we set it up in order, as a requirement of the federal government, in order to get the Central Arizona Project funded by the federal government. And that's the entity that levies the property tax that repays and that originally, the federal government. And that originally before. drew the water out of Colorado, right? And, it's and still, it, yeah, with, still it, it, it is the entity that manages gotcha. our use of the Central um, the Colorado River water. Um, and, and there's a um, contract between the Central Arizona Water Conservation District and the federal government that says the Central Arizona Water Conservation District controls any excess water. Uh-huh. Um, so you have this turf battle going on. Uh, but the Central Arizona Water Conservation District also wants to keep the water level up in Lake Mead and has been leaving water behind to do it. So it's a dispute over how much of a cushion Arizona should contribute and who gets to control that decision and control the water that is saved. We That ultimately needs to be resolved because there's a big discussion going on among all the states as to trying to change the current rules as to what happens if 
the water level drops below in Lake Mead in ways that would reduce the extent to which Arizona takes the first and the biggest cut. So it's important to get that resolved. But there is an agreement that Arizona should be taking action to leave water behind in Lake Mead to try to avoid um, triggering uh, the cuts. Um, I don't know that this is going to get resolved quickly. The Central Arizona Water Conservation District and the Department of Water Resources recently issued a very terse press release saying, hey, guys, we've decided to cooperate. Uh, well, I don't have any idea what that means, <laughs> and I doubt that the CAWCD is, is relinquishing what they believe are their rights to control these decisions. And I know the governor um, isn't going to relinquish his view of, of I'm the governor, yeah. and this is important to the state, and I should be calling these shots. Um, so I, I think it will remain messy, but I think the stakes are less than commonly perceived because I also think, for the reasons that we discussed previously, that we can manage the cuts that would occur uh, if the water dropped below Lake Mead. The first cuts go to the farmers, and there's, there's, there's enough water there uh, that sensible pricing and freedom of contract ought to be able to get us through it. So there's a there's a power struggle, there's a turf battle over how to allocate this water that is maybe getting below its threshold level for different things. But you're saying even if nothing immediate is resolved with there, we still have the ability to to withstand and have a have at least a system to to fairly allocate that we'll we'll, we, we'll get by. We should have the ability. Now, there's a chance that if the cuts were triggered, there would be paralysis uh, and um, some users would get hurt. Uh, it would be a while before that would reach municipal users and affect um, everyday uh, citizens. And we ought to be able to avoid even that with sensible yeah. pricing, freedom of contract. Um, the, the amount of water that is at risk uh, should be easily managed with um, nimble uh, policymaking. Whether we will have that, I don't know. And certainly the current spat uh, mm -hmm. between these two water management agencies don't bode well yeah. for that. Well, let's leave it there. Uh, I had a big, long rant to make about flopping in the NBA, especially <laughs> Chris Paul <laughs> and James Harden flopping every single time they get touched. Um, but I'll, I'll just leave that for... I think you just did it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, thank you very much for listening to the Political Notebook podcast. You can subscribe to us on any podcasting app, and we'll see you next week.